Good afternoon. Welcome to Left Out on WRCT. My name is Danny Slater, um, and uh, our, my co-host Bob Harper is not here today. Um, left Out is a program that examines news and views that are left out of the mainstream media. It's uh, broadcast bi- uh, bi-weekly on WRCT. So today we have a guest on the phone. Uh, his name is um, Stephen Greenhouse. He's a reporter for the New York Times. And he's just written a very interesting new book called The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker. Stephen, are you there? Yes, I am. Nice to be here, Danny. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Uh, Well, you were at uh, CMU last week, and I had the privilege to hear you give a a lecture. I I actually only got uh, to see the first half of it, but um, um, what I did see, it was a very interesting lecture, and I've also bought the book and have been reading it. Um, maybe you could just uh, start the discussion by just uh, summarizing the thesis of the book. You know, in my book, The Big Squeeze, I talk about how, in many ways, things have gotten tougher for the nation's workers than for their parents' generations, that, that things in many ways have gotten tougher than for workers 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And in saying that, you know, I'm talking about you know, wages have really been uh, stagnant or sliding in recent years, Health benefits have been getting worse. Pension benefits have been getting worse. People are being pushed to work, you know, more hours, generally harder and faster. Uh, the nation has lost one-fifth of its manufacturing jobs uh, since the year 2000. You know, folks in Pittsburgh certainly know that manufacturing has taken, taken a pounding. So I write about these, you know, unfortunate economic trends that are going at the same, at the same time that, you know, corporate profits have gone up quite strongly in recent years that productivities per, per worker has also gone up quite strongly. And I tell, you know, about these statistics at the same time I uh, tell individual stories of, indiv- of, of various workers around the country, you know, middle-class workers, high-tech workers, manufacturing workers, to show how this squeeze has affected um, many, many different Americans. Yeah, and that was a, a very, it's a very, uh, it's a nice combination because it's, for, for because you both get the visceral uh, feeling about what's happening through the stories of these hardworking people and what's happened to them, and as well as you get the this, this statistical fact, which shows that these are not just a few anomalous, unlucky people who got stuck or gotten had bad luck. It, these these are uh, sort of very representative of uh, what's happening in the American workplace right now. Um, so maybe we should just talk about a couple of the stories, uh, if you don't mind, that, that, that appear in the book. Um, gosh, there's lots of them in here. Okay. Um, maybe you could pick a, one or two of your uh, the most compelling okay, one, ones. One, one story I write about is what happened in Galesburg, Illinois, at, where there was a big Maytag refrigerator factory. And this is a factory that uh, Barack Obama spoke about in his 2004 keynote address um, at the Democratic uh, Convention in Boston. And um, this factory had been in Galesburg for years and years. It was really, in ways, the economic heart of, of, of the town. Uh, it's a town of 30,000 um, with a factory that, employs, you know, that employed 1,600. And uh, I focus on a worker, Aaron Kemp, who grew up in Galesburg. He you know, played offensive and defensive line. For the local, you know, for his high school football team, um, he wanted a good job, and he went 
into the same factory that his parents had worked in, that his uncles and aunts had worked in, and it was really uh, like an economic engine of the town. It really helped build the town's middle class. And Aaron Kemp, you know, worked there for several years, and one day he goes to work, and he sees many, many people assembled around the plant manager. The plant manager announces that they're closing the plant and that... uh, you know, the uh, Maytag refrigerators will henceforth be made in Mexico in, in a town called Reynosa. And uh, Maytag said, sorry, we have to move the plant to keep uh, keep our refrigerators competitive. And, you know, the workers at the factory were shocked. You know, they were making uh, $15.14 an hour. And uh, at the new plant in Mexico, the workers make, uh, according to some records I saw, just over a dollar an hour. Maytag says it's two dollars an hour when the buses back and forth are included. And you know the workers, you know, were devastated. You know there are 1,600 workers who lost their job. Uh, you know this is the town's major employer. And um, you, know, you know again, Maytag says we need to do it for competitiveness. And uh, the workers there, Aaron Kemp and the other workers, say you know, this has just totally devastated us. Yeah. Uh, I write about a, a software engineer ma- named Myra Bronstein um, who worked for a uh, company just outside Seattle. And Myra was told uh, that as long as the company does well, as long as you work hard, don't worry, you'll have a job. And Myra you know, worked very hard. You know, she'd work 16-hour days, 18-hour days. Sometimes she'd work uh, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10 days in a row. One time she worked 24 hours in a row, and she announced, uh, that she had to go to this long-standing doctor's appointment, and she said her manager yelled at her that, you know, the manager said she didn't have enough, wasn't showing enough dedication. Anyway, a few, you know, Myra worked there a few years, and um, one day she and 17 other software engineers were called into a conference room, and there the human resources director announced to them that they're being laid off, and Myra and the others were totally shocked because they were under, under the impression that, as long as the company did well and it was doing fine, as long as they worked hard and they were working hard, that they would still have their jobs. But the human resources manager said, uh, sorry, we're outsourcing your jobs to India. And to add insult to injury, the human resources director said, if any of you 18 engineers want to have any severance, you have to agree to spend the next four weeks training the workers from India who will be replacing you. And the workers, who were, of course, shocked by all this, reluctantly agreed to spend the next four weeks training their replacements. And that weekend, you know, 20 workers were flown in from India, and uh, Myra and the others spent the next four weeks, you know, training these workers from India. And Myra said this was the most painful, most awkward thing in the world, training the people, you know, who were to replace her. Hmm. So I have lots of other stories like that yeah. about, you yeah. know, the, the, the pain, the squeeze uh, caused in the American economy. I write about... Um, an Air Force veteran named Drew Pooters, uh, who served in Somalia, who served in the first Persian Gulf War. He came back uh, from serving overseas. He takes a job with Toys R Us in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, he's a very gregarious, friendly guy. You know, kids like him, parents like him. He's running the electronics department at Toys R Us, telling parents which are good video games for, for your kids and which are bad video games to avoid. Uh, and Drew seems pretty happy there. And one day he goes into the manager's office to check whether a uh, 
a delivery has arrived, and while he's in the manager's office, he, he sees his supervisor at a computer, and he looks over his supervisor's shoulder, and he sees that his supervisor is erasing hours that he and other other uh, employees had worked. And uh, Drew, you know, Drew Pruders, the this Air Force veteran, was shocked to see that, and he confronted his manager, and the manager says, "None of your business." And Drew soon was demoted uh, because he had stood up to the manager, and then was, you know, soon out the door looking for another job. And then, uh, as I write, you know, Drew Pruders um, then got a job with Family Dollar, the well-known discount mm-hmm. store, and he became a store manager there. And his uh, bosses said, you know, we run on a very thin payroll. You cannot spend more than five percent of weekly revenues on payroll. And Drew tried very hard to keep his payroll down, but his manager said, you're spending too much on payroll. Drew, we have an idea for how do you reduce payroll expenses. Go into your computer and start erasing hours that your subordinates have worked. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I tell this, you know, and Drew refused to do that, and I, I tell the story to show that, unfortunately, many American workers are getting cheated by companies because uh, many well-known companies put humongous pressures on their uh, supervisors and their managers to keep payroll costs uh, at a minimum. Right. Yeah. So, so that that story also. I mean, these other and other ones that I've read are, are very poignant because they're uh, <clears throat> they're full of uh, the part where their 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 family is getting completely, uh, you know, damaged by this. Where he he's working so many hours because he can't. He's got to cut the payroll. He's got to fill. The, he's got to do the work somehow. So he ends up working these insane hours, and he can't even see his own kids unless they come to the shop and 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 see him there and and things like that. So it's really it's really a yeah yeah. Sad. yeah I, when I wrote about Drew Putters, you know, I interviewed his wife, and she said, you know, he would you know he would work from like seven in the morning sometimes to one in the morning, and he'd be so exhausted that he would just sleep in the back of the family dollar because he and his wife were worried that if he tried driving the hour home at night, he'd fall asleep and maybe get killed. Yeah. And, and his wife said sometimes the only time she could get a relaxed hour or two speaking to him, seeing him, would be for her to go to the shop late at night, and she'd help mop and clean bathrooms. Uh, and at least that way she could talk to him, and that way he might get home an hour or two earlier. And as you said, you know, sometimes... She'd bring their daughters, you know, to the Family Dollar store, you know, seven or eight or nine at night, because that was the only way uh, she, you know, the kids would be able to see him. Yeah, and so the the companies that are being, you know, implicated here are are, are companies that we're very familiar with, as you just mentioned, several: the Family Dollar, the the Toys R Us, and um, there were a bunch of other Toy, ones. These Toy, are not Toys small Us, little Walmart, uh, Pep Boys, Taco Bell. I mean, I, I write about. You know, workers there, managers there, talking about laws being broken. I described some lawsuits in which there were large verdicts against respectable companies for making employees work off the clock or for not giving them the legally required lunch breaks and rest breaks. Um, I write about an undocumented worker from the Dominican Republic who worked uh, at a store in, in, in Brooklyn, who uh, you know she had to work 11 you know 11 11 and a half hours a day 6 days a week she worked like 66 hours 68 hours a week and for that she was just paid $210 her pay came to less than 350 an hour and it was pretty outrageous and she told me how she couldn't afford health insurance for herself she couldn't afford to buy medicines for herself when she was very sick she told me how she couldn't afford school supplies for her kids that she you know 
she told the kids, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to buy you a pencil sharpener. You know, you, you know, we just don't need that. We can't afford it. Um, and you know, she went to a food pantry every week to get enough food for the family. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, you know, yes, wages are stagnant for a lot of workers, but uh, it also means pain for a lot a lot of families. And Danny, I you know, I finished writing this book last January. It was you know, I put the last period semicolons in the book. And uh, the book came out in April, but you know, since January, when I really uh, finished the book, you know, things have you know sadly only gotten worse for the nation's workers. Yeah. Uh, and there was a story of the woman in Syracuse at the plastic at the uh, plastic container factory. I forgot her name, but she. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, uh, there's only one worker I write a full chapter about, and I write about her because I find it such a a telling, moving, uh, poignant story. Uh, the woman's name is Kathy Samier. Uh, she grew up uh, on welfare in um, in Syracuse. You know, her mother raised five kids by herself. Two of Kathy's uh, uh, siblings were, were were deaf, and and Kathy dropped out of school at the age of 16. Why did she drop out of school? Because she wanted to help her mother get her family off of welfare. And Kathy took a job at Catholic Charities. As a um, you know, as a secretary for Catholic Charities, and yes, she helped get her mother off of welfare. She worked at Catholic Charities for a while. Then she took a job at this plastics factory that made you know cups, uh, containers for you know d- you know for Dan and yogurt for you know cottage cheese. And uh, in her first 13 months at this factory, uh, four of the 190 workers had fingers amputated, and it was just crazy. And uh, you know they got their fingers caught in the machines because the machines mm-hmm. were lacking the, uh, the safety required that, safety yeah. safety equipment. And then you know not only that, but uh, there was terrible sexual harassment and sexual discrimination at the uh, at the factory. Um, and this was a factory that was brought in with great fanfare, with with huge tax reductions and so on. Yeah, Exem- got lots exemptions of for them. The, the, so, the so, company promised to pay the workers twelve. You know. Uh, Twelve, thirteen, fourteen dollars an hour, but Kathy and a lot of the other workers were paid only seven, eight dollars an hour, and and the female workers were relegated, were placed in jobs that were generally far, far worse than the male workers. The top twenty jobs on the factory floor were for technicians, you know, who really uh, maintain the machines, fix the machines. Nineteen of those, nineteen of the, of the twenty jobs were held by men, and those jobs basically paid about forty, fifty percent more. Than the jobs held by most of the women, and those were the the jobs just tending the machines, you know, removing the plastic containers when they came out of the injection molding machines or the printing machines, and uh, like 93 percent of those jobs were held by women, and then there was terrible sexual harassment that the men would uh, you know grab uh, the women on their breasts and their buttocks, the men would ask for you know blowjobs, right, you know. You know, during the workday, and the women were going bonkers, so they complained to management. And management just blew them off; didn't take their complaints seriously. You know, I think the factory management just took a "boys will be boys" attitude. You know, don't mm. complain to us about that. And you know, Kathy, you know, got really unhappy about this. I think you know, growing up Catholic, she really believed in in you know treating people properly. You know, treating workers with dignity. So you know, she led the unionization effort, and the United Steelworkers were the ones trying to unionize the plant. You know, she thought it's very important to have a union to help improve things. 
she was the one who filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission about sexual discrimination. She was the one who filed the complaint with OSHA about the uh, safety violations. So what happens to her for doing this, for having the courage to stand up to try to bring you know, workplace uh, improvements? So one day she goes to the factory and management said, there's a police officer waiting to speak to you. And the police officer said, there's one anti-union worker whose car wouldn't start this morning. We think she thinks that you sabotaged the car. And Kathy said, that's mm. ridiculous. I live five miles from, from where this woman lives. Why would I sabotage a car? You know, And it turns out that uh, you know, once an auto repair shop examined the car, they found that it, uh, it was a safety defect. It wasn't sabotaged. So Kathy, you know, you know, was able to uh, relax. A few days later, she goes to the factory, and she's told, uh, we're signing you to a new job, and the job is basically solitary confinement, working all by herself, so she couldn't uh, Talk to disseminate her anti-union, you know, her disease, you know, you know to, to other workers. You and, mean pro-union, right? The, yeah, the, yeah, she was pro-union. So um, she spent, like, the next week or two, examining, you know, working all by herself in a room that was called hold, like a ship's hold, all by herself, uh, examining damaged containers to see whether, you know, they, they were salvageable. So, after, you know, they clearly wanted her to quit um, because she was the one worker who really had the courage to stand up to them. And Carrie, held, uh, I mean, Kathy held on. She didn't quit. And then after, you know, being returned to the factory floor, you know, a week or two later she came into work and said, report to the Human Resources Office, and the Human Resources manager, manager told her that, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we're suspending you, we're accusing you of sexually groping two male workers, of supposedly pulling down their pants during the workday right on the factory mm. floor, and Kathy again said, this is bull, you're making this up, you just want to get rid of me because, you know, I have the courage to talk, you know, to, to try to correct things. So it you know, turns out she was fired, and uh, the United Steelworkers uh, went to the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, on Kathy's behalf, and they filed a case saying you illegally fired her in retaliation for her supporting a, a union, in retaliation for her complaining to OSHA and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And finally, finally, uh, you know, Kathy was badly embarrassed. You know, many clergy in the community uh, Which had been supporting rabbis, ministers rallied behind her. Even Bruce Springsteen rallied to her behalf. Hmm. And after a year of embarrassment, after a year out of work, 14 months actually, a federal judge ruled that the company had fired her illegally. That the company had concocted the story that she had done anything improper with any male workers, and she was reinstated. Uh, but by the time she was reinstated, the unionization drive had fizzled out because they had grown scared to push for a union because the one worker who was really courageous enough to lead them had been uh, fired, had been sacked. And not only that, eventually the you know OSHA had ordered uh, penalties of more than $700,000 for the safety violations. And um, the EOC had also, uh, well, the company reached a settlement with the EOC in which it was going to pay more than $700,000 to the workers for um, for the sexual discrimi discrimination problems. Mm. So it was a real tale of how, you know, in New York State, 
you know, in a state that we think is one of the more, you know, civilized states that treats it worse, that supposedly with a great labor history that supposedly treats it workers well, that there are these horrible things happening in a factory, and it shows how terrible things can happen to workers when they stand up and demand justice, so to speak. Yeah, now that was a a case where the company was actually breaking the law in, in, in a bunch of different ways, and they eventually, years later, they eventually had to pay. Yes, but I mean, they, they probably to, they won, to, you know, they probably won in them, the end. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, OSHA made them pay, the EEOC made them pay. Yeah. And, and as Kathy said, her big regret, you know, she got injured finally after she was reinstated, but her big regret is that, you know, even to this day, the factory's still not unionized. The yeah. factory brought in lots of immigrant workers from Somalia and the former Yugoslavia. And, you know, as you know, uh, as many Pittsburghers know, it's often very hard to uh, persuade immigrants to unionize because they're, they're often very scared to stick their necks out and, and, and say, I want a union. I mean, they see uh, workers like Kathy get fired and, uh, for supporting a union, and they, too, become very scared. Yeah. We're talking with Stephen Greenhouse. He's written a book called The Big Squeeze. And um, there's another story in the book about uh, a pepperoni plant in Wisconsin. And in that case, uh, it's, it's ty the Tyson Company, the huge meat conglomerate, buys, buys a locally owned factory um, and decides to make lots of changes. And the workers go on strike. Um, and you have a whole story in there about how the strike evolves and so on. But in this case, the company actually didn't seem to actually have done anything illegal. But they were able to win in the end because it's a conglomerate, which the, the, that one plant being shut down is something they can afford for a very long time. They can outweigh the workers because they've got all the other you know, factories that, to, to depend on. Right, Danny. So it's yeah. a huge imbalance of, of force, of power in this case. You know, when you know, in my book where I write about the big squeeze, you know, I have a chapter called "The Vice Titans" that explains how systematically things have gotten tough for workers at many companies, and you know, the wages have been squeezed down, benefits are getting worse. And I focus on this, you know, this Tyson pepperoni plant in Jefferson, Wisconsin, uh, which is between Madison and Milwaukee. And uh, Tyson took over the plant and decided that the workers there. We're making way too much money compared to its plants in Arkansas and Mississippi. And uh, in that chapter, I focus on uh, someone who had worked there for 22 years, Chuck Mulling. And I'm sorry if I keep focusing on athletes, but Chuck was the center of the basketball team at Jefferson High School. And Chuck had worked at the plant for 22 years, and after 22 years, he was making $13.10 an hour, $27,000. And uh, Tyson basically said, the workers here are making too much money. Um, it, wanted, it, it demanded a lower starting salary and a lower maximum salary. Uh, it was going to lower the uh, starting salary to, uh, I think, $9 an hour. It's going to lower the maximum salary so that people could not really make more than $11, $12 an hour. You know, Chuck Moling was making $13.10. It was going to make workers pay you know, four times as much out of pocket for the health care premiums instead of paying like 350 a uh, a month, uh, three hundred fifty a year. They're going to have to pay fourteen hundred dollars a year for the health insurance, and they were going to take away vacation days. They were going to take away sick days. And the workers said, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you know, we are just starting to feel like members of the middle class, and you're trying to really push us toward poverty. 
and the workers, the 500 workers of the plant, voted overwhelmingly to strike. And there was wonderful solidarity. Other unions, you know, gave them tens and tens of thousands of dollars for the strike. Uh, the local community, you know, gave them coffee and donuts and, and had fundraisers for them. Local supermarkets gave them food to eat. You know, you know uh, one store donated hundreds of gallons of milk for the strike, strikers to feed their family. So, you know, strikes go, it was very well run. But, uh, if, you know, but the, you know, Tyson had, you know, more than 100 plants across the United States. So even when this one plant was closed, it was able to make lots of money from its other, other plants. And one of the crazy things, Danny, was that um, Tyson at the time was making record profits, but it had decided that this plant was a bad example, that this plant was making too much money. So it really kind of singled out this plant and took a very harsh uh, bargaining line toward it. I mean, the plant itself was a profitable plant. I mean, uh, if you just the look workers at say it was a profitable plant. I think it was a profitable plant. Uh, Tyson would not really... Uh, release numbers on an individual plant, but my, you know, the workers said this was a profitable plant. Yes, and uh, you know they were on strike for 11 months, and the company brought in you know permanent replacement workers, and the workers are worried that uh, after a year being out, uh, the union would be after a year on the picket line, after a year of being on strike, they would be voted out. That the union be, would be voted out. The workers w- were worried they would lose their jobs permanently. So finally, after 11 months. They agreed to the uh, to the contract that uh, Tyson was demanding, and uh, you know the workers very much regretted it because uh, the contract meant that new workers would be earning far less, that the maximum pay there would be much much lower. But the workers thought um, they just had to accept this. Yeah, and, and, then, and, and, and then right, and you described the the case of that one guy that he used to be a coach, you coaching. Yeah, I yeah I focused on this on this worker Chuck Mulling because it, you know you know Chuck's very much a middle class guy you know he's uh, they're not rich they they were able to save a little a little for retirement save a little for the kids' education uh, and you know he was you know one of the most popular athletic coaches in town he coached uh, for his daughter and for his twin sons he coached basketball he coached baseball he coached soccer. And uh, he said, you know, I remember when I interviewed him at the union headquarters during the strike, he said, you know, one of the reasons so many American kids have problems is their parent, they don't spend enough time with their parents. And I, Chuck, I'm trying very hard to be a good father mm-hmm. and, 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 and to spend a lot of time with my kids. And he said, you know, fortunately, with his job at Tyson, you know, he was making enough money so he did not have to really work two jobs. And one of his big regrets when the union lost the strike and the union did lose the strike was he had to start working a second job, you know, to make ends meet because he was no longer able to, uh, you know, put aside money for retirement. He said he said he really didn't have enough money, uh, you know, to, to squirrel away money each week for his kids' college education. So he started a second job, and as a result, uh, he had uh, much less time to do coaching, and he really regretted it. But he felt torn, and he felt like Tyson was trying to, you know, kind of push him out of the out of the middle class. I should add, Danny, um, you know, I have a website for people who want to learn more about the books and the webs um, about my book. And, you know, you could read, you know, the first chapter of the book is there. And my website is stephengreenhouse.com, S-T-E-V-E-N, all one word, stephengreenhouse, S-T-E-V-E-N-G-R-E-E-N-H-O-U-S-E.com. And there's a lot of information about the book 
and the first chapters there, and it really lays out the thesis of the book, explaining in detail, uh, you know, how things in many ways are getting worse for workers, and how you know, trends, forces like globalization, imports, offshoring, Wall Street pressures to increase to maximize profits, have all uh, been hurting workers in many, many ways. Yeah. Okay, well, I, we have a few more minutes, uh, uh, but um, I, I guess maybe we could talk about um, some of the more overarching principles and or what like what can be done about this. Is there anything that can be done to save the the middle class or to save the you know the, the right. lifestyle that we you know that we used to expect in America? Well, you know, one big point I make, Danny, is that um, about something that I think is very important, but there's been very little discussion about in the United States, that, you know, again, the nation has lost more than one-fifth of its manufacturing jobs this decade. And I think that's a, a startlingly, startling number and a horrifying number. And, and, again, these jobs, many of them were middle-class jobs with good benefits and good wages and, and uh, in theory, good job security. And I think it would be great if we as a nation figure out you know, uh, strategies to help preserve our manufacturing base. And, and one way to do that uh, is would be to uh, invest far more in green industries, in, in industries that will help us obtain, attain energy self-sufficiency. You know, I think we as a nation are far behind the Europeans and far behind many Asian nations on things like developing hybrid cars and, and wind turbines and... Uh, and energy-efficient buildings, and I think we can do a lot of investment there that would help do many things at, at once. It would help maybe lift us out of this economic downturn. It would help uh, get our manufacturing base going again. It might create several million good middle-class uh, jobs, including manufacturing jobs, and very importantly, it would help uh, give us uh, energy self-sufficiency and help fight the greenhouse yeah. effect. I just found a website today. I happened to find this called nextnewdeal.org. And um, I don't know if you've seen this. It's part of truemajority.org. But nextnewdeal.org has a little video which basically says what you just said, that, you know, proposing actually what they're, they're responding to the bailout proposals. And they're saying, well, we should really be spending this money on this other stuff, on developing all these, these green technology and millions of new jobs and all that stuff. I don't think one precludes the other. I mean, my sense is if there's no bailout, you know, Wall Street's going to really plunge and bank lending will be cut off and Wall Street will be hurting, but Main Street will be hurting very, very badly as well. Uh, but, I, you know, I think a lot of smart people uh, are saying, you know, we got to, you know, whether it's uh, T. Boone Pickens or Tom Friedman, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying we as a nation have to get our act together on energy. You know, for too long we've been profligate. For too long we've just been, you know, shoving hundreds of billions of dollars a year to, to the Middle East, you know, to buy their oil. And that, you know, that's uh, stupid economics. It's bad foreign policy just, you know, giving all this us money to many countries that uh, do not have our best interest in mind and that we should really, you know, buckle down to create energy uh, self-sufficiency in the United States, and for too long we haven't taken our energy problems seriously. Right. Yeah. So uh, your official title, I guess, or your... I'm the Labor and Workplace Reporter for the New York Times. I've been doing that 
since 1995. I began at the New York Times in 1982 covering the steel industry, and I spent lots of time in Pittsburgh early on in my career at the Times. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I know that uh, there used to be labor sections, right? Well, not labor uh, sections. So, I mean, yeah, there used I mean, to be labor serious labor reporting. We used to have four labor reporters at the paper, and you know, in the 19, late 1940s, the 1950s, unions were very strong, very powerful. They conducted many strikes. Uh, I remember there were days when there'd be five, six labor-related stories on the front page. You know, the world has changed. Uh, you know, high tech and finance you know, are kind of the hot things in the economy. In the 1930s and 1940s, you know, labor unions were kind of the hot new things in the economy. But, you know, I think it's sad that right now I'm one of the two full-time daily labor reporters left in the country. The other's at the Wall Street Journal. And I say it's sad, Danny, because... In the country? That's unbelievable. Yeah. There are 140 million workers in the country, and there are many, you know, important trends involving workers, many outrageous stories involving workers, illegalities, you know, sexual discrimination. You know, there's some companies, you know, that do a great job in treating their workers well. And I, and I write about that. You know, I write about Costco and Patagonia and Ernst & Young, the accounting firm. Uh, and, you know, we should, and, and, you know, we should tell those stories as well. Those stories can serve as models for other companies and for the nation's workers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know what else we should. Maybe we should wind this up. Okay. I mean, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I, I should, you know, add, you know, I have a chapter of recommendations about, you know, what can be done to help uh, lift the nation's workers. And I talk about, you know, it would be good uh, to raise the, the earn, income ta- earn, earn income tax credit to help the poorest workers. You know, unionization might be a would be a, a very important tool. Again, I think to help especially low wage workers. And I write about an organizing drive in Houston uh, that organized more than 5,000 janitors. And that that unionization drive, you know, really essentially will double their you know will increase their hours and essentially double their pay over a three year period. So I think unionization is another important uh, tool that workers can use to improve their lot. What about the whole problem of so-called free trade, which, I mean, where you've got workers who are basically working under slave conditions or unsafe conditions or factories that are polluting and doing tremendous environmental damage, it makes no sense for those those workers to be, quote, competing, unquote, with American workers. I, you know, I've and written it, many stories over the years, Danny, about you know sweatshop workers overseas and, and how sometimes conditions are outrageous, and stories like that have embarrassed you know, companies, you know, Nike, there are scandals involving Nike, there are scandals involving uh, some factories. Walmart using, you know, in the 1990s, you know, the gap was very embarrassed. And, and I think stories like that help uh, cause some of these companies to clean up their act in terms of the factories they use overseas. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate there are sweatshops, but, on, you know, on the other hand, uh, it's good to develop industry in poor nations because it helps provide jobs there and helps lift the workers there. But the important thing is to make sure that conditions in those factories are not horrible, that the wages in those factories aren't horrible. I mean, you know, industry uh, manufacturing is an important step for economic development. It was important in Britain in the early 1800s. It was important in the United States in the late 1800s. And 
it's important in Sri Lanka and, and China and, and Bangladesh, but you know, it's vital to make sure that working conditions and wages in these places are not horrible, that they you know, should be used as a way to lift workers and, and their families. Well, okay, I guess with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the program. We've been talking to Stephen Greenhouse, a uh, New York Times reporter, about a book he's just, uh, just, been, just came out a few months ago, The Big Squeeze. And um, you can buy the book, um, I'm sure, at major bookstores as well as Amazon. And you can also go to his website, stephengreenhouse.com, S-T-E-V-E-N, greenhouse.com. Um, so thank you very much for... Uh, Spending My some pleasure, time with Danny. Us. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. So that's it for our program. I want to thank uh, Darren Guler for producing our program. Uh, we, we'll be back again in two weeks with another edition of Left Out.